The Dalai Lama once said that today, more than ever before, life must be characterized by a sense of universal responsibility, not only nation to nation and human to human, but also human to other forms of life. Join me in conversation with some of the world's most creative thinkers to explore the importance of ethics to this responsible decision-making in today's technologically infused world. Artists, entrepreneurs, scientists, journalists, academics, and beyond navigate the gray, the blend of right and wrong, of opportunities and risks on all sides of our most important challenges, whether gene editing, civilian space travel, or artificial intelligence. They also probe the age-old and more ethically black and white behaviors, such as sexual misconduct, human trafficking, and life-threatening inequality. Our guests endeavor to transcend religious, political, national, and ethnic perspectives, but recognize the inevitable biases we all bring. The term ethics can make us uncomfortable. At the Ethics Incubator, we confront the E-word head-on. It may be inconvenient or even unclear, but ethical conundrums underpin almost every headline and affect almost every human choice. With truth under threat and the boundaries of humanity blurring, I believe that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. As always, we welcome your thoughts. Senator Feingold, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's really an honor. Before we get into some of today's more pressing ethics issues and also some of your current projects, can you speak a little bit about the principles that have underpinned all of your many life adventures, personal and professional? Are there certain guiding principles or kind of a North Star that you could point to that helped you in, in making some of the very difficult decisions you've made over the years? Well, I would say that, uh, and thank you, Susan, for having me yeah. on the program. Um, I would say that my parents really instilled in me the idea that there's certain, it's important to work hard, it's important to try to do well in mm -hmm. school, it's important to try to achieve, mm -hmm. but there are certain baseline things that have to do with honesty and integrity and trying to get along with other people that are sort of the touchstone. And so for me, when I tried to go into politics, was able to go into politics, the one thing I wanted for sure was knowing that if you keep running and running, you'll probably lose someday, which is what happened, mm -hmm. is that what I really wanted at the end of the day was to be sure that people would say that at least I was straightforward and honest and had integrity and was willing to try to work with everybody. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of been my touchstone. Uh, that's what I like to think I did and would like to continue to do in other contexts in life. Well, I think those traits are the traits of resilience. They're the traits of a resilient organization and they're the traits of a resilient individual leader. Can you talk a little bit specifically about the McCain-Feingold Act? Because I think that's great background for some of the topics we'll come to in a minute. How well, it was you... just amazing how it came together, uh, Susan. It was, you know, of course I was concerned as a Democrat, as a progressive, mm -hmm. about the role of big money in politics. So when I was fortunate enough to come to the United States Senate at age 39, I thought, okay, I'll be one of 15 people like mm -hmm. uh, Tom Daschle and John Kerry and Joe Biden, all who had been working on it for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they kept trying to pass uh, some kind of campaign finance and uh, were defeated. The filibuster was able to stop it. Mm -hmm. So I was just uh, flabbergasted when after the Republicans took over uh, in the, the famous contract with America election in 1994, 
We lost the majority. I was sort of the low man on the totem pole for the whole Senate, lowest in seniority mm -hmm. of the Democrats. Out of the blue, John McCain, who had, uh, we had no relationship, other mm -hmm. um, than saying hi in the hall, basically. Mm -hmm. He, um, he called me and said, you know, I'm looking for somebody who would help me on working on reform issues, deficit reduction issues, getting rid of government waste. And I who can he, say no to that? Well, I said, sounds good to me. I right. mean, this guy's a war hero. I'm, right. I'm a young new senator. And so we started, a, um, started working on things together. People think we started with campaign finance. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. I, he, I said to him, well, what do you have in mind? Mm -hmm. He said, well, doing something about this problem of, of the so-called revolving door. Mm -hmm where members of Congress leave the Congress and right. can immediately or soon start cashing in on lobbying. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I, I support that. And I said, and, and John, what I'd like you to help me do is help get a gift ban. Because mm -hmm. in Wisconsin, when I was in the state Senate, mm -hmm. you couldn't even take a glass of orange juice from right. a lobbyist, at least you weren't supposed mm -hmm. to. And so members of Congress were getting all these gifts and fancy dinners and all this. So together, he and I, with others, uh, were able almost right away in 1995 to pass a major gift ban on members of Congress, which has had to be updated, mm -hmm. but was a, a real step in the direction toward uh, ethics in, in politics. So that was, those were, that's how we f uh, sort of worked on those projects. And then we decided to take on campaign finance, which was the one we're known for. And we worked for seven or eight years and finally succeeded in um, mm -hmm. passing what's probably the best known bipartisan piece of legislation in the last 40 years or so. Well, you mentioned common ground. That doesn't seem to be something there's much of today. Words like division and divided, not only in the U.S., but internationally seem to be where we are. But I do want to come back to this idea of collaboration and common ground. But where is campaign finance today? I mean, we've had Citizens United, we've had other cases, and now we have all unraveling of all kinds of ethically motivated efforts like that. Where do you see it today? Um, and if you can talk a little bit about your new project, Legit Action, some foundation about that, because that, when, I, when I read that, that seems to be very much about campaign finance and also broader democratic ideals, making sure that Supreme Court nominations are reviewed properly, That's right. getting the vote out, That's et cetera. Right. But can you talk a little bit yeah, about, is sure. that an extension of some of the- It relates to it yeah. for sure. Let me first, just a, a bit of background on the campaign finance okay. issue, because of course you accurately stated it. I mean, it's basically in a, in a free fall. It was gutted. Campaign finance laws were gutted by the Citizens United decision. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest myths out there is that the McCain-Feingold bill was overturned. It was not. They did something actually far worse. Worse. <laughs> they went back to a bill signed in 1907 by Teddy Roosevelt, the Tillman Act, mm -hmm. which said, you know, the, the Robert Barron corporations and others of the year, the oil companies and others had such a stranglehold on the political system, mm -hmm. as well as the economy, that progressive Democrats and others and Republicans passed this bill and Teddy Roosevelt, a progressive, signed it that said corporations can't use their treasuries, the money they get mm -hmm. from you and me, mm -hmm. uh, for campaigns. Mm -hmm. And that was the law of the land until this five to four decision in 2010. And so I always explain to people what it means is before that decision, if you bought a tube of toothpaste, mm -hmm. that money couldn't be used to support, let's say, Donald Trump if you didn't right. like him. Now it can be. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything. So it is essential that we overturn that decision one way or another. And there are many other things I can talk about mm -hmm. that can be done at the federal level and the state level. And at the state level, including here in California, they are doing things. They just passed a disclosure bill that I helped uh, work with an organization here mm -hmm. that Governor Brown signed that said, you know, on these uh, initiative things that are dominated by corporations, right. they'd have to actually identify themselves. So okay. 
We have suffered a huge blow on this issue, but it's time to fight back, and, and we can fight back. It is a huge blow, even in an era where social media empowers individuals to speak out. So in terms of balancing the scales of freedom of speech and power without financial resources, we're certainly in a better place than we were before social media and technology generally. But that can't really compete and doesn't really address the issue of the, of the corporates. That's part of the tragedy of this, yeah. is that what had happened after we passed McCain-Feingold, which meant that politicians couldn't call, uh, incumbents couldn't call up people and ask them for unlimited contributions to the political parties. That's still the law. Mm -hmm. But what happened because of that is you didn't have these huge unlimited anonymous mm -hmm. contributions. Is that uh, people like Howard Dean and then ultimately people like Barack Obama and others figured out that you could raise small dollar contributions, mm -hmm. not corrupt contributions where right. the politician calls somebody up and asks mm -hmm. for the money, but huge amounts of money from small donors. And, of course, Bernie Sanders turned it into a, an art form. That was what I would have called the democratization of our campaign finance system. And I believe that's why the hidden corporate powers in this country and wealth powers in this country said, we've got to stop this. This is a real populist thing in, in a good sense. And they engineered this ridiculous, and I, in my view, lawless decision in Citizens United to stop the power of the Internet, to, which does allow us not only of course, to communicate with each other in a way that's mm -hmm. much less expensive than it would have, or mm -hmm. much faster than in the past. But it also allows you to raise money in a non-corrupt way where a 90-year-old woman can put right. in a contribution I mean, for $10. I in a sense, it's democratizing know? democracy. That's right, right. electronically. Electronically, yeah. right. And so that is good, but the bad news mm -hmm. is these unlimited hidden contributions by people like the Koch mm -hmm. brothers and mm -hmm. Sheldon Adelson and others are so powerful and can be done through the media, it can be done through paid television, it can be done in social media. They infect every aspect of information in a way that makes the political system uh, bewildering to people. So your new project, Legit Action, addresses this, but it also yeah. does a number of other things, if I read correctly. So right. gets the vote out, addresses the Supreme Court nomination process. Is that correct? You're right. And, and what else are you trying to do, as if that's... Well, it, there's a principle that, that ties uh, what I call the four pillars of this together. Mm -hmm. And yes, it, it sort of happened, and I thought of doing this in November of 2016. I had mm -hmm. some time on my hands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I thought, well, what's really going on here? And I realized that all of us understandably obsess almost about Donald Trump himself, the right. awful things he says, the racism, the mm -hmm. ridiculous way he, he mm -hmm. deals with foreign policy. And, and that's understandable. But the trouble is people get so hooked on that, mm -hmm. so distracted by that, that they don't see that even before Trump, and it'll be going on after Trump, there was a direct effort by the Koch brothers and others in this country to destroy things that were matters that were not partisan, that right. were fundamental institutions, and there's four of them. Okay. Uh, well, there are many more. Mm -hmm. But the four that we chose are the right to vote, mm -hmm. the attack on the right to vote mm -hmm. in so many ways, voter ID, reapportionment, felony yeah. voting. This was something that even right-wing Republicans were generally afraid to mess around with. That was the mm -hmm. first one. The second one you've already identified, of course, campaign finance. Right. That was the, the McCain-Feingold bill wasn't just McCain and Feingold. It was a lot of bipartisan mm -hmm. people working together at the state and federal level. So that, that what, which was a largely nonpartisan or bipartisan issue, mm -hmm. was gutted. The third, yes, the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an ancient thing in the Constitution, but to have the Electoral College uh, override the will of the majority of the American people mm -hmm. twice of the last three new presidents mm -hmm. 
uh, is something that I think has caused a crisis of confidence. And I think um, it used to be a fair amount of interest in getting rid of the Electoral College on a bipartisan basis. When uh, Birch Bayh mm -hmm. was a senator in the 60s, he was able to get the House of Representatives to pass a constitutional amendment, uh, but the Senate blocked mm -hmm. it. So this wasn't something that was Republican-Democrat, but now, of course, the Republicans This is shocking, block. by the way, even to people overseas. So I spend a lot <laughs> of my time in London and Paris, and, and I travel a lot internationally. And I was in London at the time of the 2016 presidential election, and it was very difficult for foreigners to understand what actually happened, because it was expressed in the news as you just expressed it, as you know, the Electoral College overriding the will of the people. And it's just incomprehensible, in particular to members of other democracies. And France was looking forward to an election, and we were, you know, we just suffered Brexit in the UK. And in, in the midst of all of this, that was probably the most difficult part of that election for people to understand. It's almost incomprehensible in the 21st century. And you can say, well, this was the genius of the founders. And not really. Right. What it was was a concession to the slave states. Okay. The slave states wanted to be able to count the slaves, mm -hmm. three-fifths mm -hmm. man provision, so they would get as many electoral votes as they could possibly get. And of course, I, I love jo Thomas Jefferson, but he wouldn't have beaten John Adams if it had not been for, for that way of counting. Uh, and then it was flawed anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first amendments to the Constitution, the, the, the second amendment after the 10 Bill of Rights amendments, was they had to change the Electoral College anyway. So it wasn't put together well, and it doesn't make sense now. And so um, a third pillar of our uh, legit action is, is either to get a constitutional amendment to get rid of it, or to support something called the National Popular Vote Initiative, which is a compact, a voluntary compact of states who agree as a group that all of their electoral votes will go to the person who gets the most votes nationally. Mm -hmm. And they've actually got 10 states already on board. Mm -hmm. The fourth pillar, which you've already alluded to, because uh, you obviously did your homework on this, which I appreciate, thank you for mm -hmm. looking at it, is the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. If you had told me, Susan, that a Supreme Court justice would die and that the duly elected president of the United States would be denied the right to have that person considered for a year, I would have said that's impossible. Right. That's something neither a Democrat or Republican at any time that I was in public life would have thought was fair play. They stole the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. They stole it that seat and, and it's a crime. And it's particularly shocking because Supreme Court nominations are permanent. So it's particularly shocking in that, in that context. Of devastating. That that's, it, it, it's, it is devastating. So uh, there's four institutions, all of which I would say as of 2009 and 2010, this isn't 20 years so this ago, is, this isn't 100 years ago, this is recent Koch brothers and others uh, attack on institutions that used to help keep us together, the common ground mm -hmm. that you and mentioned. So, so how is this organization funded? Through small contributions, okay. basically the same way uh, that I did my campaigns. We, mm -hmm. we send out emails saying we're going to try to get rid of the president's voting commission. We were okay, one of the leading right. organizations on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, would you please uh, sign a petition? Can you send 10 okay. bucks? Can you send 25 okay. bucks? It's a very small operation, mm -hmm. but we're you know, working with other groups. Um, I think we underestimate how important every little contribution matters, whether it's a signature or a gift or sharing something on social media. I'd like to turn now to a couple of really difficult decisions that you've made, sort of in the spirit of understanding how we make ethically difficult decisions. I understand that you voted in favor of impeaching President Clinton. I voted to simply hear the evidence. Okay. So he was impeached by the House. Right. 
And then there was a moment in the trial where the Democrats tried to stop the trial in its tracks before he heard all the evidence. Okay. And I was the only Democrat to vote to hear the evidence. Okay. But when I heard the evidence, I didn't think he should be convicted. Okay. So I voted against convicting him. But no, I was the only one to, of the Democrats to mm -hmm. say, wait a minute, don't let's not turn this into right. sort of a, a fraud. Right. Let's make it as real a let's trial. Make it legitimate as the founders would have intended. That's right. exactly right. Let's make it legitimate. Okay. That's, that's, that's what was concerning. Okay. Now, if you were voting today, would you vote to impeach President Trump if that were on the table? Well, I'd have to go through the process mm -hmm. uh, of knowing what are the charges, mm -hmm. what, what is he being impeached for, mm -hmm. what is the evidence. Mm -hmm. But, you know, since I'm not in the Senate anymore and since I've had a chance to get a sense of what's mm -hmm. going on, I think there's a pretty good chance that, that I would have vote or would vote if I were in the Senate to uh, remove him from office on the basis of obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. I think it's clear mm -hmm. that he has obstructed justice in, in the sense of what impeachment is about. Okay. Impeachment is not necessarily exactly like a criminal case, mm -hmm. but this has to do with a high crime and misdemeanor. And I right. think the way he fired Comey and the way that he's worked uh, with the Russians on, on, on these different issues mm -hmm. uh, in terms of trying to obstruct justice, I think probably that's what I'd end up doing, but I would try to do it in a way that, that respected the process mm -hmm. and not go in and announce my vote in advance. One of the craziest things that impeachment trial was people were announcing their vote before the trial started, in the right. middle of the I mean, trial. That, that, Judge Posner has criticized that properly. But that decredibilizes everything. Exactly. The, the process, the result, the people involved. I mean, it goes back to your principles. That's right. Uh, and it goes back to a lot of what I work with in my students is how do you make complicated decisions that you're going to like you know, five minutes from now, five days from now, five years, 50 years from now, even if you don't really like the outcome. Because a lot of forces can intervene to change the outcome of a decision. That's right. Or things, things can go wrong. But the idea is how do you make decisions so that you like the decision and you can defend the, the credibility and the quality of the decision, whatever the outcome. Making yourself feel that you've done your due diligence right. is so important. And so, for example, as, as you know, I was the only United States senator to vote against the Patriot right. Act. You know, as I said in, in the, my book, as I've told mm -hmm. people, you know, I voted for the Afghanistan war, even though I was appalled about mm -hmm. how long it's lasted. I assumed that I was going to vote for this follow-up bill, mm -hmm. which was going to give some changes in, in some processes involving going after terrorists. Mm -hmm. For example, you needed a longer statute of limitations for bioweapon crimes. Mm -hmm. But then, I, because I, I didn't sort of say, oh, I'm voting for this until I looked at it, I, I looked at it carefully, I read it, I was the chairman of the Constitution Subcommittee, and I discovered that this thing was loaded with all kinds of stuff that really had nothing to do with terrorism, was really about drug cases. Okay. Bob Novak, the famous conservative mm -hmm. CNN commentator, he said at the time, this is an old wish list of the FBI. Mm -hmm. So by leaving that door open and doing my due diligence, I was able to look at that and say, I really wanted to change it. I wanted to be able to vote for it. It was a hard vote. And I said, look, this is not a legitimate process. And it wasn't a legitimate process. It was jammed through the Senate by a Democrat majority Senate. People mm -hmm. forget that. This isn't a partisan yeah. attack. This was the Democrats caving in. As but well I think as some of it also is, I mean, I hate to come back to basics, but some of it is also what you just said, which is read what you're voting on. Um, and I know we, a lot of us had this problem with the Affordable Care Act. It was somewhere close to 1,000 pages. I sit on a hospital board in Paris, the American Hospital of Paris, and I looked around the room at business leaders, and all of them had opinions on this act, and none of them had read it. Yeah. And, you know, so I think we have a problem of getting to the, you know, of being a little bit more careful about what it is we're writing and what it is we're reading. Speaking of which, I'd like to speak a little bit about your wonderful book, While America Sleeps. 
you wrote it sort of on the heels of 9-11. Um, uh, 2011, actually, about 10 years later, yeah. But but it's very it's 9-11 right. retrospective. It really delves into how we made or didn't make such good decisions or how we did or didn't integrate ethics into our decision-making very well. But I was so struck by this theme of complacency. I hope everyone reads the book because it really is a very relevant message today about underestimation of the enemy, whatever the enemy is, or the challenge an overestimation of our own ability to deal with it, particularly in a world that's changing so quickly. And I'm wondering if you can talk about places today where you see that complacency is a particular risk and, it, you know, and, a, and perhaps a particular ethics risk. Well, you know, I, I just happened to have just seen the movie Darkest Hour, okay. uh, you know, which reminded me of why I called the book While America Sleeps. It was mm -hmm. a takeoff on Churchill's mm -hmm. While England Slept. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't agree with Churchill. I've read about him on a lot of issues. But the fact is he was warning mm -hmm. the world about Hitler for a long time and people were discounting the danger. Mm -hmm. What I was trying to convey, really from a completely mm -hmm. different, more left-oriented, progressive mm -hmm. uh, mood, was that our response to 9-11 started out being the way you would think you would want it done. In other words, mm -hmm. I thought the President Bush's speech- right I thought it was tremendous. It was marvelous. I, it was. I thought it was like one of the best speeches Absolutely. I've ever heard. And then somehow, uh, for the reasons you suggested, mm -hmm. political reasons and otherwise, other agendas, we got diverted away mm -hmm. from that unity and this crazy idea of invading Iraq on mm -hmm. no basis at all uh, prevailed not only with the Dem Republicans, but as I just pointed out a minute ago, it was a majority with Democrat United States Senate that approved the Iraq invasion. So what the book does is say, look, we don't understand the rest of the world as Americans the way we should. We don't know where places are. I, I loved your chapter, Where's Tunisia? Yeah, it was a young right. man from Marquette. Right. I read his letter to the editor, Marquette uh -huh. University, where I taught for a while. And he said, you know, this headline of his story was, where in the world is Tunisia? Right. You know, at the beginning of the Arab Spring. You know, myself included, mm -hmm. we don't know enough about the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. When you're in England and France, mm -hmm. you know, for perhaps the wrong reasons, they're very aware of the rest of the world because they were colonial power. Right. But they at least know about places like Somalia. Yeah. They know about places like Indonesia. Mm -hmm. They know about places like Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. We are lacking. Mm -hmm. We are lacking in our care about understanding the rest of the world. We are lacking in our ability to realize how important it is to know the rest mm -hmm. of the world. We don't know languages. Mm -hmm. You do, but I don't. Mm -hmm. My mother knew six languages, mm -hmm. and I discounted the importance of that. Very and important. It's very important, yeah. and we are, we are so far behind mm -hmm. for being this great country. And 9-11 and should have been the wake-up to get us back on track Instead, we've been diverted into the most horrific domestic mm -hmm. fighting uh, that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's mindless and simplistic in many cases. We even see situations though like the Ebola crisis in West Africa, where Doctors Without Borders, and that's an organization that I've had the privilege of trying Great to support group. for many years, um, they were sounding the alarm bells saying, this is a crisis and nobody was listening. And we started listening way too late. And then all of a sudden there's a case in Texas and everybody's waking up, or there's right. a nurse coming back or a doctor coming back to New Jersey and everybody's waking up. So this attitude that unless it affects us at home in a way that we can understand, I think is, is part of the complacency problem. But if I can ask you about a couple of specific places in the world and what you think we should do and how we make the right choices when we have limited resources, and I hate to sort of equate the two, but resources does affect ethical decision-making and ethical leadership. But what about the Rohingya crisis? 
Well, this is a really interesting example mm -hmm. of, the, of the dangers that I tried to identify in my book. Mm -hmm. to, to lump together all people of a particular religion right. and to not understand the nuances is an enormous mistake with any religion, let alone a, a religion of over a billion people, mm -hmm. Islam. Right. We domestically started off doing pretty well about not singling out Arab Americans or South Asians and mm -hmm. others. But, you know, Fox News and others started talking about Islamophobia. And even the president for a while, President Bush, mm -hmm. was talking about that. So, you know, encouraging the American people mm -hmm. not to understand the nuances, but to sort of lump everybody together. So what do we have? We have a situation in Myanmar, Burma, mm -hmm. where there is this Islamic minority, and uh, they're being treated very brutally in many cases. And instead of, of putting pressure on them, which frankly we used to do on mm -hmm. a bipartisan basis when we were trying to get Aung San Suu Kyi right. freed and to, to liberate the country, uh, Mitch McConnell and others were very good on this issue. Mm -hmm. Instead, we have a president who sort of likes to be buddy-buddy with the strongmen of the world, mm -hmm. whether it be in the Philippines or Indonesia or mm -hmm. Myanmar. He is willing to forgive anything mm -hmm. uh, as long as that leader is friendly to him. Mm -hmm. And so my fear is that he can say, well, uh, under the authorization for the use of military force from 2001, I should have the ability to help uh, repress this minority. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there is some violence there. There mm -hmm. are, of course, some radicals there. Mm -hmm. And he can use it as a pretext mm -hmm. because the Congress right. has failed to assert itself and, and say, look, this authorization for the use of military force does not allow that. Right. And we need to reassert, they need to reassert themselves in that regard. But we have a president who is extremely dangerous and willing to use prejudice uh, to go after people. So I think this is a, dang this is a dangerous message mm -hmm. to send to Myanmar that they should feel that they can Well, he certainly didn't come out very strongly even in Charlottesville. Myanmar is a very complicated situation, but you have people who are not citizens of anywhere. And there may have been, or allegedly there was some violence that started it amongst the Muslim population. But the way to deal with that is not to create the situation of, of massive refugee crisis, no. um, the horrendous mistreatment of women. I mean, it's just unspeakable violence that's happening there in, 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 in Bangladesh. And then, you know, the, the Buddhist leader who was told even by the Myanmar government, you cannot speak out and, and say the kinds of things you're saying, the sort of incitement of hate that wouldn't even, you know, measure up to our First Amendment standards. So what does he do? He takes to Facebook and does it. Yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden he has a global audience. So complicated situation. Well, you think about a place where even the Pope was reticent right. about right. taking this no, on. Exactly. So if we aren't going to be mm -hmm. the moral leaders on this, mm -hmm. don't think the Chinese are going to do it. Right. Uh, even the Pope felt somewhat constrained. Right we have an absolute obligation not to send the, to sort of wink toward that regime and mm -hmm. say, do whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. What about Yemen? Another, I mean, the, the New Year's headlines in Yemen, 400,000 young children dying of starvation. Um, what do we do about Yemen? Or what should the U.S. do about Yemen? Or what, where do you see the big ethical question with Yemen in terms of our role? Well, when you read my book, you might have noticed that one of the chapters was mm -hmm. essentially started off with, well, I guess it's Yemen now. Right. Uh, you know, because first, it was Afghanistan, mm -hmm. where bin Laden was, mm -hmm. at least for a while. And then, then we went into Iraq, and, mm -hmm. then, and then people like Joel, Senator Joe Lieberman and others, when they saw some things happening in Yemen, and, and there were some of the people that attacked the USS Cole mm -hmm. from Yemen, he said, well, now it's Yemen. And, and, and that's sort of my point in the book about our uh, complacency, is that we have this weird tendency to only be able to think about one place at a time. Mm -hmm. I say it's sort of like a whack-a-mole kind of right. game where we go, well, it's this place, now it's this place. Uh -huh. You know, for two days it was Niger. Right. 
Uh, you know, uh, we don't have the capacity to apparently our policy leaders, the people of the country, certainly the president, mm -hmm. to think of these things as networks and interconnected to other things. Um, as I pointed out in the book, you know, there's all kinds of problems in Somalia. There's all kinds of problems in the Horn of Africa. And, uh, well, Shabab so, has been a problem in Somalia for, yeah. forever. Yeah. So I, you know, I was over there and I asked my staff and we were on a foreign mm -hmm. relations trip trying to get on something. I said, well, how far is it mm -hmm. from Yemen mm -hmm. to the Horn of Africa? Because, you know, there's a sea there. Mm -hmm. It's only 20 miles. And so if you, if you don't think those things are all interrelated, mm -hmm. they are. Now, of course, the situation in Yemen is complicated by the Houthis, by the recent death of the former president, mm -hmm. and of course, especially by the Saudi Arabian involvement, which, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it seems to be over the top, mm -hmm. uh, justified by President Trump to the point, and this is a slight up, mm -hmm. upbeat note, mm -hmm. the House of Representatives recently voted overwhelmingly to challenge some of this being done uh, by Saudi Arabia in a resolution. They mm -hmm. actually said, wait a minute, this is nuts, but the humanitarian uh, catastrophe there is, mm -hmm is over the top and, and nothing's gonna make it easier. But again, just like uh, Burma or Myanmar, for us to simply say, well, we're with the Saudis and they can do whatever they want, it's not gonna make it better. No, and it isn't picking sides in one place. I mean, the, we're, we're looking across the world and seeing free speech is crumbling in Turkey. We have a disastrous humanitarian and political situation in Venezuela with Maduro. Now we have a change in, in Zimbabwe. We have a change in South Africa. We almost had Le Pen in France and people say she never would have won. But I can tell you having uh, lived through Brexit and lived through Trump, yeah. <laughs> um, my husband's French, everybody was getting out the vote in France to make sure this time that it didn't happen. I think we do need to sort of step back and start to say, what do all these things have in common? And how can we um, be strategic about addressing this rise of authoritarianism and rise of division, as you, as you said? If I could switch gears a little bit, I'd like to ask you about technology. How have you seen technology influence government ethics and challenges that the government faces? And there are any number of things you, you might address, but for example, we recently saw some of the, the Silicon Valley tech companies out in Washington or their legal leaders and Senator Feinstein said to one of them, this is all terrible. If you don't get this under control, all the shenanigans happening on, on social media, for example, if you don't do something, you know, or do something, or we will. And I just remember thinking at that moment, with due respect to Senator Feinstein, it's not or we will. It should be and we will. It should be that there's some responsibility for this that is regulators, some responsibility that lies with the companies, some that lies with perhaps other groups, even think tanks or nonprofits, That's some right. with the individual users. But the question is, what has technology done to complicate the ethics of political leadership? And what do you, how do we allocate the responsibility for technology that perhaps exceeds our understanding, let alone our ability to keep up with the law? Well, it slightly amuses me to be asked about technology because I've never been known as Mr. Technology, mm. to say the least. Nor I haven't been known as a technological <laughs> leader either. But right. one of the things that happened as a result of, of the election was that I was able to come here at Stanford and also go to Yale and mm. in both places teach a seminar with mm. really smart students just taking on this issue of fake news and misinformation. Mm. And it caused me to think about what you've asked. Mm -hmm. it's, what has happened with technology over the last 20 or 30 years and how do we sort of address the problems mm -hmm. that it might involve? The first thing to me is to recognize how wonderful it is that we have this ability to get information so quickly mm -hmm. and to find out where we want to go. And if I want to know how to say something in French, even though I wish I knew it all myself, mm -hmm. I can look it up. 
This yeah. is a, actually a modern miracle mm -hmm. that in many ways was driven out of these, mm -hmm. these communities right here in, um, in California. Mm -hmm. So that's the great news. And it also has connected people in, in a way that is, is wonderful in many, many ways. And of course, that was the, the spirit was and the, the, spirit, the right? spirit. And, and I still, in many ways, believe in it. I think these companies believe that they're doing something exciting and a mission that can help people. Hey, well, and I, I don't do anything without Google, including well, something like prepare for an interview <laughs> like this. You know, right. For me to find my way on the Stanford campus yeah. here, it was Google. Right. So that's great. And, and yet they now have to admit, and this is what happened in the last year as I was teaching these courses, you saw people like Zuckerberg, you mm -hmm. saw the leaders at Google, you saw others having to take some ownership of what happened. But the big question becomes whether the kind of thing Senator Feinstein said is done or not. Mm -hmm. My instinct is to say, as much as these companies have to be responsible and respond to pressure, mm -hmm. that it, government should not be making these decisions. Mm -hmm. I don't want the United States government, especially when I look at the way it's conducting itself now, mm -hmm. to start micromanaging what should be on the internet and what shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And so the conclusion we came to in our courses is that probably the best thing to do is to make it clear to these platforms, these internet service platforms, that they need to figure out ways to deal with mm -hmm. this problem, to help their consumers figure out what's fake and what isn't, mm -hmm. uh, and to do what they can to improve journalism, but that they should, we should not get into micromanaging. The one caveat, though, and this is a, a separate thing, I've always believed that Corporations can become too powerful, that monopolies are dangerous. Some of these now are essentially monopolies, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be Facebook or Google or whatever. And there's so much power connected with it that some people are interested in, in taking actions in the nature of antitrust actions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about content mm -hmm. um, regulation. It's another thing to say some entities are just too big. Mm -hmm. So there's probably more room for conversation about that. About the level of control. Yeah, yeah. about competition. Mm -hmm. But uh, fundamentally, um, I would like to see us do everything we can as a society, policymakers, mm -hmm. citizens, mm -hmm. uh, people that are customers of these uh, companies, uh, saying, look, you need to fix this. And in, in my conversations, it, and they were kind enough to meet with me and many of the top leaders, mm -hmm. they're, they want to know what, what is it we can do. And I, I know they don't want to tell us their uh, algorithms, and, and right. that, that's a big part of the problem. There needs to be more transparency. We can't demand that they give up their, their company secrets, but the more information that a company like Google can let us know about how they rank things on that first page when you do a Google search, mm -hmm. that's the ballgame. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, well, what I don't are think the, they one, need one, to expose three. their proprietary uh, information about things like algorithms, and frankly, somebody like me, I wouldn't understand it anyway. There's a, f a fair amount of what I would call low-hanging fruit. The idea that there can be online sex trafficking. It's hard to believe that there are leaders who would not say, we need to do something to eradicate that. Right. That isn't protected anywhere under any circumstance, and you couldn't do that in a room, so why should you be able to do that online? Yeah, um, there's precedent for this uh, yeah. in, in the area of, of free speech, where I right, was exactly. as adamant of a believer and, and no censorship, mm -hmm. but when it came to laws relating to child pornography, right. it was not hard, no, to, exactly. of course, to vote uh, to deal with that because that's mm -hmm. a different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I would say those principles mm -hmm. can be applied, but uh, to to the internet, and, and it can, uh, you know, the mm -hmm. Communications Decency Act of uh, 1996 sort of gave them a free pass. Right. Not, but you know, on some of these matters that are of that nature, I could see some action, mm -hmm. but. 
the overall danger here is that people are going to get into the Legislate speech. Yeah, and, and they're not capable right. of, of doing that. And beyond the capability, I mean, we saw a British Prime Minister, Theresa May, come out and say to these same companies, if you don't get rid of all the potentially terrorist uh, supportive content, you know, you're going to be subject to huge fines. I mean, in addition to the fact that these companies don't care about fines at the level she's talking about, her own head of national security said it's a terrible idea. It's going to drive you know these people underground. They will develop new technologies, and they have. And it's a terrible idea for all kinds of reasons. Just simply, it won't work. I think you make an important point about not wanting the government to decide about content. On the other hand, I think there is a discussion to be had when the we're just a platform argument is used about things yeah. as egregious as child pornography or online sex trafficking. Or even, even the fact that, that, that they do end up putting out there all, all kinds right. of fake news and misinformation. Mm -hmm. There is some responsibility that has to go with that, but you you hit it right with the British example. Um, the Economist did, you know, every year mm -hmm. they do their predictions for 2018, and, mm -hmm. and their article was, you know, governments around the world are gonna say, or else, like you were mm -hmm. talking about, and it's particularly true in the European Union and in countries like Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, the good news is we do have the First Amendment mm -hmm. here in this country. Uh, in a well, and free speech form. Is, is protected even I would almost say even further in the UK, but that didn't stop her reaction. That's so sort of so I think it's important yeah. to, to have this kind of discussion. It is. Now, and it's an international discussion. That's what's exactly. amazing. We used to be able to mm -hmm. sort of say, okay, this is what the United States is going to do. Mm -hmm. But you know, as Zuckerberg and others have said, we're willing to change this vis-a-vis -vis what people see in China, mm -hmm. but we don't think we should have to change it for the whole world to make China happy, for example. So this is the crazy aspect of mm -hmm. this, is that they have to deal with with the internet in 180 countries right. and the laws so of So these companies countries. have the challenge of that. And these companies have very challenging ethical questions like, is it better for Facebook to be in China under censored right. conditions than not at all? Yeah. And those are really difficult questions. But at the same time, the legislators have an impossible task because national laws are ill-suited to deal with the borderless impact of technology. That's right. So it's, it's kind so, of a, it's so it's challenging on both sides. It's challenging, but you know, these companies have a tremendous interest in maintaining uh, their principles. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping companies like Facebook and others, when mm -hmm. they're dealing with China, do mm -hmm. say, look, uh, if you want us here, uh, I know they want right. to be there, but if you want us here, you're going to have to mm -hmm. allow certain things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then hopefully the pressure, and people of China, of course, are very uh, interested in the internet now, right. enormously. They also and, have a lot of their own, though. I mean, Tencent, et cetera, they have extraordinary leadership in some of these areas. So we'll see how that plays out. Just, if I may, a few more questions. Um, looking back, was there ever a time when you supported a vote or made a decision, personally or professionally, where you said afterwards, oh, that wasn't quite my ethical best? Yeah, I don't know about ethical, but it related to ethics, mm -hmm. I suppose. It was a desire to win, and, and that's when, uh, before uh, I started working on campaign finance reform with Senator McCain, about 1993-94, mm -hmm. uh, one of the senators suddenly offered a constitutional amendment to change campaign finance laws. So you vote, and you got 20 minutes to vote, and then you can, you can vote and walk back to your mm -hmm. office. So I voted for it, and by the time I got back to my office, I wish I hadn't, and that's because just because I wanted to deal with a campaign finance issue, changing the Bill of Rights, changing the Constitution, that part of the Constitution mm -hmm. for the first time in American history, to me, was letting my desire to solve a particular problem get ahead of my judgment. Okay. Uh, and uh, actually, I'm going to be teaching now for mm -hmm. a seminar uh, EEL Law School about amending the Constitution mm -hmm. when it's appropriate. Are there different standards, of course, for amending the Constitution versus just passing a bill? So that was one of those moments when I had to say, look, there's limits 
to, to what, what you can do. There's as limits much as in you sort win. of taking a deep breath and going back That's to right. principles. Yeah. And in, to use a Yale example, I mean, Yale's whole question about Calhoun College, yes. there was one decision that was made, and it was a difficult one for Peter Salovey, the president of Yale. And then it was reversed. That's right. But it was interesting to watch that the process of reversal was a committee that started by saying, what are our principles here? That's right. What are the principles on which we're going to make this decision? Um, and that's crucial because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, other universities now are looking at the same issues. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Yale had a challenge on this, mm -hmm. took it on, and most people believe success succeeded in it. Mm -hmm. My wife and I are living in the new colleges at, at, at Yale this year while I'm a visiting professor. Is that ben well, one, one is Ben Franklin and uh -huh. one is Polly, Polly Murray. Right. And so one is this, you know, you know white guy from name. a couple hundred years ago. Uh -huh. And then this woman who was a tremendous uh, African-American progressive lawyer mm -hmm. uh, who was at Yale mm -hmm. is the other half. Of, and, and they're sort of one college. And uh, they're literally two different colleges, oh. but it's the same physical mm -hmm. spot. So, you know, they, they had to go through that whole naming issue right there. These were the first new colleges at Yale, as I understand it, since the early 60s. So this issue of naming is, is going important. to affect many places, mm -hmm. yeah. And what do you think about this whole issue of history? Because one of the things about today's compromised truth, you mentioned fake news. I've been looking more generally at compromised truth. And one of the questions that comes up is, today's compromised truth is tomorrow's distorted memory and distorted history. What is your take? You were a Rhodes Scholar, you were at Oxford, you watched the Cecil Rhodes debate at Oxford that came That's out right. differently. What is your take on what we should be doing with Confederate statues and whether it's at a university or in a, in a more public context? These are very hard issues, but you know, we have to remember the old expression and the truth, right. which is that history is written by the victors. Right. And so a lot of times history and what's commemorated and what's right. taken as truth is, is not always accurate. And so it, it's frustrating sometimes to realize something you've believed was true your whole life is not true. But mm -hmm. the, the challenge here is to see if we can modify some of these recognitions of historical events mm -hmm. as historical events and bend as strongly as we can toward not offending people in a fundamental way with a statue of somebody who is, uh, is offensive mm -hmm. to them. And we, we've gone through this, of course, in mm -hmm. places like Wisconsin with uh, the names of, of sports teams that were right. offensive to Native Americans, to, to Indians, uh, American Indians. So, you know, people think, oh, this is terrible. How are we going to get through it? Well, once you change a name or you move the statue, everybody sort of calms down, mm -hmm. you know, because the goal here isn't to erase history. Mm -hmm. uh, in a place, we were, happened to be on the Charlottesville campus just a couple of weeks mm -hmm. before this horrible thing happened, you know, and I could see some of the various statues. And I, I you know, it's, it, I understand you have an affection, a connection to the campus and to where certain things are in town. But, you know, life will go on mm -hmm. if, you can, if you can move those statues or take down something mm -hmm. like the Confederate flag that is so mm -hmm. offensive to people who You don't who have to were, destroy it. You can keep it somewhere that's right, else. That's right. I also don't fully understand the argument that by leaving it there, you can ex better explain history. You can explain the history either way. You can explain the history whether you leave the statue or whether you take it away and replace it with someone, something else. Yeah, it reminds me of the Holocaust Museum mm -hmm. in, in Washington. Exactly. You know, <laughs> you go in there and there are these horrific mm -hmm. things that are displayed and shown mm -hmm. that occurred. And they don't honor them, obviously, right. but they're there. Mm -hmm. and, and you can learn about them but it's in the right context. Right. 
what would you say would be the one lesson after all these years in politics that you would that you would share? I know that your students are lucky enough to hear some of this live, but for everybody else who doesn't have the good fortune to take your classes, what would be the one lesson that you think is really important to remember in effective decision making? Well, a lot of young people are coming to me now, thank God, at mm -hmm. various universities and back home in Wisconsin saying, oh, I'd like to run for office. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. mad about the way things are going. And I, I guess what I would urge everyone to do I want them to do it, mm -hmm. is to say to yourself first, what are some things that I will not do or will not compromise to the point of giving up that career? Mm -hmm. you know, the, for me, it was always the death penalty. Like, mm -hmm. I couldn't support the death penalty in any context, and I never did, because mm -hmm. it just was so fundamental to me. But it may be other things where you don't want to have too many of them or you're not mm -hmm. going to be able to proceed, mm -hmm. whether it's being pro-choice or whatever it is. So establish your boundaries. Establish some boundaries th so that you realize, as wonderful as a political career can be, it's not worth uh, saying, well, you know, I've got to give on this one, uh, mm -hmm. if it's fundamental to you. Mm -hmm. So have a sense of what you really care about before you plunge into this, and mm -hmm. over time you'll develop mm -hmm. other things you care about. For me, I knew essentially nothing about Africa, I'm embarrassed to say, mm -hmm. by the time I was 39 years old. But it happened through a series of things that I became the most involved in Africa of any member of the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so in this, uh, this part of my life, I've become absolutely passionate mm -hmm. about Africa and what's happening in some of the, particularly the Great, the Great Lakes, Lakes region of, right. of Africa. Uh -huh. So that's the other thing I'd say to people. Just because you think you're interested in certain things at, at when you're 18 or 25 or 30, I guarantee you a big part of your life is going to be being fascinated and caring about things that you have no concern about right now. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a life lesson, especially now that we tend to live a little longer. There are different chapters mm -hmm. to your life and your interests and what you do in your career. And I think people should be open to that as well. Well, I love the way you put that. It's sort of establish the boundaries and don't establish useless boundaries. Right, exactly. Um, Senator Feingold, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Really, it's been an honor and a lot of wonderful learning. I really appreciate pleasure. your taking thank the you, time. Susan.